Mark chapter 14 as we continue in this series, coming toward the close of the book. But we're this morning in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42. If you'll open your copy of God's Word to that portion, we'll be again reading there in just a moment. Our Father, as we come to this time in our service now, we pray that you would quiet our hearts before you that we might receive what you have for us in this reminder of a very significant and familiar event in the life of Jesus. Lord, we pray that its familiarity may not cause us to rush past it quickly, but that we might think through carefully what its significance is in the plan of redemption and that we might be ever more appreciative of the great price that our Lord and Savior paid for our salvation. Let your Holy Spirit be our teacher, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, we're picking up at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You all will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Ava, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time. And said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says of Jesus the Messiah, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's a huge paradox, isn't it, when you think about it? The crown jewel of heaven, 
the eternal second person of the Godhead, worshipped by angels, the agent and sustainer of all creation, the almighty sovereign Lord of all things, should be despised and forsaken of men, should be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet those two realities exist side by side in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. No place is that more evident, perhaps, than in the passage we're looking at this morning in the inauguration of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ as it reached its apex. As Jesus and the now 11 disciples left the upper room where we found them last week, having celebrated the Passover feast together and the Lord had, impl- had instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But now these 11 disciples and their Lord had left that upper room and adjourned to the Garden of Gethsemane. Apart from the cross, the moments in Gethsemane were, most, were the most intense in Jesus' life. He experienced there the crushing weight of the task he was about to undertake. He witnessed there the weakness of his disciples who, though they protested they would not fall away, did fall asleep. He saw the betrayer coming. He sensed the anguish of the cup that would not pass. He would drink it, and he would drink it alone. Now make no mistake that the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. We must lay over this text the reminder that this was according to plan. That the plan of redemption had been instituted in the mind of God from the foundation of the world. And that Jesus was now fulfilling that key role that he played in that act of redemption willingly and in submission to the Father. His self-sacrifice was deliberate and was undertaken with a great awareness of the personal conflict that would be involved in providing our redemption. But that which had been known from eternity past was now coming to realization in history and the events that were involved in that plan were going to be exceedingly, extremely, unbearably painful for him. In the passage before us this morning, we see Jesus, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in particular, we see two demonstrations of the grief that was experienced in this, in this time in the Passion. In verses 27 through 31, we find the grief of abandonment. And in verses 32 to 42, we find the grief of anticipated agony. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Each of these griefs corresponds to a scene in the account. The first scene where we find the anticipated, or excuse me, the grief of abandonment, we find Jesus on the path from the upper room in the city of Jerusalem, the old city, across the brook Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane. It takes place during a walk, about a 20-minute walk. And then arriving at Gethsemane, we find in verses 32 to 42... The second scene, which takes place in the garden, and which we find particularly noted in Jesus' prayer, the anticipated agony of the cross. Now we first turn our attention to the grief of abandonment in verses 27 to 31. 
It begins with Jesus initiating the conversation with a word of warning of sorts. He says in verse 27 there, you all will fall away. Now there's uh, some difference of opinion about what the expression fall away there should be translated to say. It's variously translated. Your translation may have the words of be offended or stumble or some have it run away. Others may say desert. Here I think it's well translated fall away in light of the prophecy that follows taken from Zechariah 13 verse 7 where Jesus cites that prophecy, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The shepherd is about to be struck down in the crucifixion. And what Jesus is predicting here is that absent their leader, these disciples, especially seeing their leader in the crisis to come, were going to scatter to the four winds. Well, not quite the four winds, but they were going to scatter. And so the picture here is not one that they were objecting to Jesus or finding something offensive in him, but rather under the crisis of the moment they were going to flee in fear. Their courage would fail them, and they would forsake the Lord Jesus. Now it's important here to understand that this is not the, the betrayal of Judas that's in view here. What we find here is not in these disciples losing of their faith, but rather we find their faith put to a test and their courage failing them in the midst of that test. But the prophecy that they would fall away is followed by a promise. And that is that Jesus would be raised again. Verse 28, you'll see it there. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. There's going to be a reunion of these scattered sheep with their shepherd. So even in the midst of a bad news prophecy, there is the promise of good news to follow. But the prophecy was taken with a protest. And that's what we find when we get to verse 29. As Peter, being Peter as he regularly was, piped up impulsively and first with the mouth to say, well, I'm not going to fail you. You notice there, uh, he says, uh, "All, even though all of these may fall away, I won't. Peter was impetuous and he was impulsive. His eyes were not on the promise of the reunion, but rather on the prophecy of the failing, and he was determined that he was not going to fail. His motives were certainly those of loyalty to Jesus. He was not Judas in this moment. In fact, his words would, would normally perhaps provide comfort and encouragement to the Lord Jesus, that though he might be about to face some, some uh, rough water, that he would be supported by his followers and his friends. It would be comforting if it were only true. But the Lord Jesus knew these disciples. He knew both their loyal intentions, but also he knew their human frailties. And so truly, he said, in follow-up, you notice there in verse 30 and 31, Jesus said, truly I say to you. This is a word that gives emphasis to what he's about to say. If they hadn't been willing to accept it the first time, now he's going to say it with some emphasis. Truly I say to you that this very night, the failure was going to be imminent very soon. This very night, before a rooster crows twice, Peter, you yourself will deny me three times. The imminence of this betrayal is striking. 
Because the events that are unfolding on this walk are occurring just a little time before midnight. Remember, they'd been in the upper room. They'd celebrated the Feast of the Passover. So the hour is getting late. It's approaching midnight as they're making this conversation. The crowing of roosters, I mean, you you live out in this area. You know how roosters crow. It's always when you're trying to sleep, isn't it? But they can almost regulate their understanding of time by the crowing of roosters. The first crowing would occur around midnight. And the second crowing would occur at the end of the third watch of the night, which would be about 3 a.m. Now you know why they were annoyed by roosters just like we are, because those are opportune times for sleeping, not for being awakened. But it was going to be a very discernible event, the rooster would crow. So here we are a little before midnight, and Jesus in fact tells Peter, before 3 o'clock in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter still doesn't get it. Verse 31, he kept kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples joined in the protest. What strength of, of, of confidence in himself that even if he had to die with Jesus, he wouldn't deny him. Those words would come back to haunt Peter, as you know the rest of the story. Now let me remind you again that these are not the sins of Judas. Judas committed acts of intentional treachery against the Lord Jesus. That betrayal that Jesus had prophesied in the upper room was even in the process of occurring. We're going to see reference to that as we come to the end of this text this morning. These fellows were not Judas's. Their resolve was commendable, but they clearly underestimated the temptation they were about to face, and they overestimated their readiness and their spiritual strength for the ordeal that was at hand. Now, there's a lesson for us, I think, in what we see in this scene of the story. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to stand confident in our Lord. We are called to stand firm and confidently so in the faith. But we must beware of a misplaced confidence in ourselves. The peril of spiritual warfare is real, and any of us is capable of crash and burn. It's a thing that keeps us humble. Instead of having our utterances tinged with the pride of Peter's protests in this text, where boldly he asserted his his strength, his courage, his bravado to the Lord who knew better. The Lord who knew better and yet loved him just the same. Well, as we come to verse 32, the scene has changed. We've seen the grief of abandonment as Jesus foretold it. And as he saw the the protests and yet knew that those protests were not going to pan out in the end. And so in verse 32, we come to the grief of anticipated agony. As verse 32 tells us, they came to the place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for oil press. 
And it makes sense as the name of a place on the Mount of Olives because this garden likely uh, featured many olive trees. And they would build presses near the tree so that they could pick the fruit and place it in the press to squeeze the oil out. And a mount that's called the Mount of Olives is bound to have olive trees, and the Garden of Gethsemane was likely a, a cluster of those trees. It would be a place that you might uh, retreat to for solace as well, as well as for a crop because it would have the privacy of a semi-rural setting. I mean, the city of Jerusalem is just across the, the Kidron. And remember, we're only 20 minutes away from the, uh, the heart of the city where they had held the upper room uh, events. But we find Jesus and the disciples now entering this garden. It was a familiar place to Jesus and the disciples. They'd been there before. As he anticipated the cross, verses 32 and 34 tell us that he dispatched eight of the 11 disciples to remain at the entrance of the garden. And he took Peter, James, and John with him further in among the trees. The anticipation of his grief is reflected in some of the descriptions of his, of his heart given here in verses 33 and following. As he took Peter and James and John with him, he began to be very distressed and troubled. The words are put together in that fashion in our translation. It's hard to put into words the state of heart and spirit that those words represent. You can take them on their face and understand something of their nature, but their depth is hard to fathom and appreciate. Uh, one author described it this way, these two words together describe an extremely acute emotion, a compounding of bewilderment, fear, anxiety, nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as they are found to be here. Now, don't let that escape our notice. Even if we can't quite put to words the intensity, recognize the fact that this, this expresses the depths of distress to the best of the possibility of human language and human expression. Jesus uh, is experiencing that, the, the writer here, Mark, tells us. But then Jesus, from his own lips, says in verse 34, My soul is deeply grieved, more language in the same vein, to the point of death. You can't get much more extreme than that. That it is so deep a distress that it is, is, is as if he would rather die to be relieved of it than to be experiencing this kind of, of suffering and pain. And so in the midst of this depth of distress, he, he tells these three disciples to remain there where they were at that moment and to watch. Jesus went a bit further, according to verse 35, and there he fell to the ground. He began to pray, the next words tell us. But in the falling to the ground, there is a significant dis, uh, uh, disclosure of the depth of the suffering that he's experiencing at this moment. Normally, when a person would pray in that time, they would pray standing. Perhaps they would bow their heads, perhaps they would look to the heavens, perhaps they would raise their hands, but they stood. However, if one were praying in deep distress, they would fall prostrate on the ground. The posture revealed something of the depth of the passion involved in the prayer. And this passage tells us that Jesus fell to the ground. 
as though the weight of the burden was so strong upon him that his body physically could not remain upright. It shows the depth of the pain and the anguish of his heart. You see, Jesus knew full well that he was standing at the apex of the very eternal plan of redemption of the triune God. He knew that it had been designed from the foundation of the world, had been discussed within the councils of the triune Godhead, had been anticipated and, uh, and expressed throughout the ages of human history to that point through sacrifices offered as, as deeds of obedience and acts of worship by the nation of Israel. He had witnessed years and years of days of atonement in which an animal was sacrificed and the blood sprinkled in, in the, uh, the obedience of God for the atonement of sin. All of these had been those things that the timeless, eternal, second, son, uh, second person of the Godhead, the Son, had seen and witnessed. And he knew now that those things that were pictured in prophetic typology in the Old Testament were about to be actualized in human history in him at the cross. As we'll see in a moment, he was determined to do the will of the Father as it had been designed in that eternal plan of redemption from the ages. But at the same time, he knew the price that he would pay as it would involve becoming sin, the one who knew no sin, becoming sin. And he was repulsed at the idea. It was so horrible and foreign to his very character and his very being. Therein lies the conflict, the struggle that he has in the Garden of Gethsemane. The struggle to be the Redeemer, to fulfill the redemptive plan of God, and yet to pay an unthinkable price to accomplish it. In verses 35 and 36, we find that Jesus, anticipating this grief, sought solace through prayer. And the heart I want you to take away from this text today, if you don't get anything else out of this passage, attend carefully to what he says in prayer because it is so profoundly deep and significant theologically for our eternal salvation. Jesus, first of all, it's noteworthy, resorted to prayer. He knew where the source of strength and struggle is to be found. This isn't the first time that we have found Jesus adopting the posture of prayer in his life and ministry. Uh, even in our studies in the Gospel of Mark, noted those occasions where he withdrew and prayed. And now he withdraws again and prays at the most intense moment of his life. His prayer is, is uh, in, intense in the way that he addresses the Father. He calls him Ava which is an Aramaic term that can be translated best, I believe, my father. It's a term that indicates the closeness of his relationship, indeed the, the belovedness of the father and the son for one another. And it's a cry of, of, uh, of reliance upon this one who he knew loved him and whom he deeply loved. It's a powerful statement of close relationship in a call for deliverance from difficulty. In this prayer, we read further that he acknowledged that all things are possible with God. You, you'll see it there where he began to pray, if it were possible, that the hour might pass. Now, again, that's Mark telling us the content of what Jesus said. And then we come to verse 36 and we find it from Jesus' own lips. He says, Ava, Father, 
all things are possible for you. That is a very important statement about the character and the might and the power of God. God can do anything but fail. He is almighty, he's all-powerful, and it certainly was within the realm of his power to deliver Jesus from this plan. This was a strong affirmation of God's sovereign control over the events that were to come. There's another interesting paradox that we see in the whole of the passion of Christ. I've already mentioned one side of the paradox, and that is the fact that this was by God's design. This is the plan of redemption that was inaugurated from the foundation of the world. God is in control of this. Somehow things have not spiraled out of God's control. And and now the, the powers of Satan and sinful people are about to rise up and take over. No, that's not what's happening here. And yet we find even as we come to the end of this passage this morning that Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of sinners. And so we find here that God, who is all-powerful, certainly could suspend this whole plan, could deliver Jesus from this crucifixion that was anticipated. And because Jesus knew that all things are possible with God, he offers the prayer. As it is in verse 35, that the hour might pass him by. As his own words have it in verse 36, remove this cup from me. The hour is a very important expression over the course of the life of Jesus. It's a reference to time, isn't it? And it reminds us of the fact that the eternal plan of God is actualized in time. And it's according to God's ordering of the events of time. God is in no way limited by time. That's part of what it means that he's eternal. He created time. And he works according to plan and with order in time. And that is very evident in this discussion of the hour. The hour that Jesus refers to is an expression that would encompass the whole of the events of the passion now to come. It will include the arrest, the trials that he will endure. It will include the crucifixion on the cross that is about to occur within hours of this event in Gethsemane. This isn't the first time that the hour has been referenced, however, in the Gospels. It's a particularly common expression in John's Gospel. At an earlier time, as reported in John chapter 7, verse 30, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. But we're told in John 7 that no one laid a hand on him, and this is the reason, because his hour had not yet come. We find as the time of the crucifixion was drawing nearer, Jesus prayed, Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came to this hour. That's in John chapter 12, verse 27. Similar sentiment to what we find here expressed in Gethsemane, though it's a different event in John 12. John chapter 17 records Jesus' great high priestly prayer. And according to verse 7, or chapter 17, verse 1 of John, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour that had been foreseen before but not yet arrived, Jesus now knew full well that that point that had been identified and ordained from eternity past had now arrived. And so as he prays in Gethsemane, 
realizing that becoming sin for us was a penalty that was soon upon him, he asked that the hour might pass, that there might be some other way, perhaps, to save mankind. In verse 36, Jesus puts it in the language of removing of the cup. It's an interesting expression. It's full of deep theological significance. When we think of a cup, we might think of a, of a container, you know, something you might put a little bit of water in or some powder or something. But the word cup could often be used not only to represent the instrument, but also the contents in it. So if you have a cup of water, you might be referring to the instrument, or you might be talking about the fluid that's in it, water. It's used as a figurative expression in the Bible, frequently not to talk about water or, or beans or powder or something else, but to talk about things like blessing, or the cup of joy, or my cup overflows, as we find it in Psalm 23. Again, a cup that is a pleasant thing. But more frequently than that, when we find the expression of the cup in the Bible, it's referring to the judgment of God, his wrath, affliction, and the suffering that attends to those experiences of coming from God. In numerous references in both Testaments, too many for me to give you this morning, the expression of the cup portrays the totality of God's judgment upon the wicked. It's the outpouring of his wrath against sin. Listen to this expression as we find it in Revelation 14, verse 10. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Fire and brimstone. In a measure that only God could mete out. We might think of fire as our friend. I know I kind of view it that way when I'm burning brush piles. have a few of those. And I was burning one here about a week or so ago. And it reminded me that while I started that fire myself and took the responsibility to keep it contained. It has to get hot to do its work. But, you know, as you're tending the fire, you've got your shovel or whatever else there, and you, you have to get close to keep the, the uh, stuff falling off the edges on the fire, it gets uh, terribly uncomfortable. I couldn't stand next to that fire very long when it was getting to its, its peak. I'd get up and, and shove something on, and then I'd have to back away because the, intent, the heat was so intense I couldn't take it. Can you imagine not being able to step back from that heat, not back from that flame, and instead to be eternally consumed in it as the outpouring of the wrath of God against sin? Folks, I've just told you about hell, because that's exactly what hell will be. If you want to see more about the fire and fury of the wrath of God, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 16. Don't do it now. We're not going to go there. But read it through. It's an account of seven bowls of wrath that God pours out in judgment as the end of time approaches. Destructive. Judgment 
from the hand of God. Now, why is God so mean? Why is it that he pours out all this wrath? It's the natural counterpart to his nature, which is absolute holiness. And it manifests itself against willful, high-handed, deliberate, inexcusable sin and iniquity performed by God's creatures. The scripture says that God's wrath is always just, is always proper, and is always rightly motivated by his perfections. The Apostle Paul states it in Romans chapter 1 when he says that God's wrath is universally revealed against human impiety and injustice. Here's what he says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now there's some bad news in that for you and me, friends. Because that says that God has a predisposition of wrath against sin and against those who suppress sin by their unrighteousness. And if you wonder if it includes you and me, just turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, or you can listen while I read, where the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now the alls and the rest in there tell me that all of us fall under this sentence of the wrath of God. And that's the bad news. And when Jesus said, Lord, I don't want to drink that cup, and Jesus could rightly say, I don't deserve to drink that cup, take that cup from me. Because he knew that to partake of this cup and to experience the wrath of God would mean that he was becoming a curse for us. He was being made sin uh, himself who knew no sin. As a sin bearer, he was going to become the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. That's what it would mean for him to take that cup. No wonder he asked for that cup to be taken. But to get ahead of the story just a little bit, Jesus took the cup. And here's the gospel. Here's the good news. If the bad news is that we were all by nature children of wrath, if you know Jesus Christ, listen to these words from Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is to say that because Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath, you and I have been saved from it delivered from the the penalty and the horrible uh, judgment of sin that otherwise would have come upon us. That is gospel. That is good news. And that's what Jesus was about, even as he struggled with the conflict that he faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
We sang it in the first song with which we worship this morning. In Christ alone. That's a fairly recently written song by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. And it, in my mind, is one of the most theologically profound worship expressions in our day. Just remember the words of that second stanza again as I read them. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The wrath of God satisfied. And because God's wrath has been satisfied, we don't fear death. We live in Christ's death. Jesus realized the omnipotence of God with whom all things are possible. The Father could have taken away the cup, and you and I would have been forever condemned to hell. But verse 36 tells us that Jesus yielded to the will of the Father. Look at it there again. After asking to have the cup removed, he said, Yet not what I will, but what you will. In all of the anguish, there was unconditional submission. Doing the will of God had been the supreme concern of the Lord Jesus from the beginning of the plan. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, there's a quotation from Isaiah, or excuse me, from Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7. Listen to that statement the writer of Hebrews gives, and listen to the time frame in which he puts it. He says of Jesus, therefore, when he comes into the world. Now remember, Jesus is the eternal second person of the Godhead. So the manger in Bethlehem was not his beginning. It was his incarnation. It was when God took on flesh. As he came into the world, this is what he said. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. It's an aspiration that all of us do well to, to own, to do the will of God in our lives. But here it's made particular to the coming of Jesus, that he came on a mission of obedience to the will of the Father. Early in his ministry, Jesus said, according to John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6, 38, we read, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You see, all along the way in the course of Jesus' incarnate life, he was aware that he was on a mission, a mission of obedience to the will of the Father. 
And so when we find him in this apex of agony, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He's only reconfirming that which he has affirmed all of his time on this earth, that he came to do the will of the Father, and he would submit to him. Jesus was not a mere martyr. Jesus was the eternal Lamb of God, still is, who came to bear the penalty of the sins of you and me. The wrath of God was soon to be turned loose on him in full fury and force. It would be realized at the cross, but it was anticipated as the grief of Gethsemane. Well, as we move on into verses 37 through 41, we find the frailty of the disciples on full display in sleep. I'm not going to take... uh, time to to unpack these verses fully but you can see the pattern there uh it's beginning to give us a few hints of the the uh, weakness in the disciples who weren't going to deny him or fall away but they fall asleep as they are supposed to be watching and waiting so that they wouldn't enter into temptation we find that jesus had gone away to pray when he came back and found them asleep he wakened them and charged them a little bit uh, challenged them for their their inability to stay awake And there were two more repetitions of that pattern. He went back and prayed, came back, found them asleep again, woke them up. They didn't have anything to say. They knew that they were uh, failing him at that point, I suppose. He went away to pray, came back the third time, and found them sleeping yet again. He reminded them, and it's perhaps something that we should take note of, that though their spirits were willing, they had this, this loyalty expressed in their resolve, the flesh was weak. And again, it becomes a lesson in humility for you and me to realize that, that uh, we need to be very careful to, about overestimating our faithfulness to the Lord and to humbly walk with Him. When we come to verses 41 and 42, we find the betrayal of the Lord Jesus at hand. Notice how he puts it, the hour has come. This is the hour that he had just prayed might pass away from him. But now he acknowledges in submission to the Father's will that the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And with that word betrayal, we bring to mind that that, uh, act of treachery of Judas, who Jesus had foretold in the upper room was going to betray him. Judas had gone and made the arrangements and was soon going to be bringing the, the soldiers and other authorities to arrest Jesus. The betrayal was at hand. And so Jesus said to the disciples, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The call to go is the end of this scene in Gethsemane. But the call to go is not one to flee. He's not going to try to outrun the the, uh, authorities. He's rather going to meet them. Because he is confirmed and and is very well aware of the will of God in this matter. And that he knows that God's design is that he will be betrayed and crucified at the hands of sinful men. But don't forget the paradox here. The plan of God called for his passion and his crucifixion. He was going to be executed at the hands of sinful people. And so we have a culpability 
in his passion, even as God designed the plan. Jesus refused the protection that he might have claimed in the power of God from the powers of Satan. Reminds me that there had been another event involving Satan and a garden. Happened back in Genesis chapter 3. And in that garden, Satan prevailed. As he tempted our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve, and as they rebelled against God in sin. In that garden, when God came down and settled accounts, he gave what theologians and Bible scholars call the proto-evangel, the first announcement of the good news. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it's part of the curse that God put on the serpent and threw the serpent upon Satan who had energized that serpent in the garden. He said that the day would come when there would be a bruising and a crushing. It would be between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is a reference to the Lord Jesus. The seed of the serpent is Satan doing his work through the ages of seeking to derail God and his plans. And he said in that proto-evangel that the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will be expressed in this way. You will bruise his heel. Might seem that the bruising of a heel is a victory for Satan. But, but God, in pronouncing judgment on Satan, said, You may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. In another garden, the conflict and the struggle gained intensity as Jesus prayed the prayer of Gethsemane. But when he got up from that prayer and went with resolve to meet the betrayer, we know who's going to bruise and who's going to crush. Because the day is coming when Jesus will be nailed to a cross. It's only going to be the very next day, in fact. But Jesus is going to rise again. And Satan is defeated. And our victory is won in him. Friends, the message of this day has been a, a, a message of deep anguish. It's not a message for funny stories and things of that sort. It's just the text does not lend itself to that. We have to appreciate and understand the gravity of Gethsemane. But as we understand it, we realize that it is central to that which we hold as hope. Hope not of wrath or not fear of the wrath of God, but a hope in the deliverance and the salvation provided by our Lord Jesus. Worship team, please come, and we'll pray as you come to close our service.